Hi, and welcome to the Deeper Than Money podcast. I am your host, Chloe Elise. I'm a millennial money coach, speaker, dog mom, and a seven on the Enneagram. And I am on a mission to prove to you that finances can be fun and easy. On the Deeper Than Money podcast, we will dive into all things millennial finance, debt, saving, mindset, and how to have financial freedom to enjoy life in your 20s and 30s. I want you to leave this podcast with more confidence around your moolah and the belief that your biggest financial dreams are possible for you. So let's talk money. This week on the Deeper Than Money podcast, we welcome Natalie Frank Hayes. She is an entrepreneur, mobilization marketer, community builder, and neuroscience nerd. As one of the founders of the Rising Tide Society and the head of community at HoneyBook, she leads tens of thousands of creatives and small business owners while fostering a spirit of community over competition all around the world. I am so excited to introduce Natalie on the Deeper Than Money podcast to talk all things money. Natalie, welcome to the Deeper Than Money podcast. I am so excited to dive in and talk to you today. Can you please first start off by giving a little snippet about you and all of your many endeavors that you have going on? Tell us a little bit about HoneyBook, Rising Tide, and just everything that you have worked so hard to to build. Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. And I do. I wear a lot of hats. I am the co-founder of The Rising Tide, which is a community of over 75,000 small business owners who unite in the spirit of community over competition. Um, With that, I am also the head of community at HoneyBook. We are an incredible platform that supports business owners in managing all aspects of their business. We are client relationship management. We handle transactions and help um, folks to design a truly extraordinary experience for their clients um, all online through, through our platform and what we do. I'm also an author. My book launches in August. Um, but my favorite, I think title of all is I'm a mom and a wife and, um, passionate creative and, I really love the work that I get to do. It's a ton of fun and the impact and the people I get to meet just make it uh, really, really an extraordinary way to wake up every day. Oh my gosh. I I love that so much. And I mean, obviously this is a finance podcast and so we talk a lot about money, but uh, you know, the reason I started this company is because it's not about money, right? Like the thing you shouldn't wake up every day and be like, how much is in my bank account? Like you should wake up and measure financial freedom by being like, I love my life. Like this is awesome. This is what I get to do every day. And so it's so cool to just hear your story and hear you embodying what it means to have that financial freedom in your life. So obsessed with you, obsessed with your story. And one thing I love so much about Rising Tide Society is is this idea of community over competition. And I think especially with, you know, like I think back to even as a kid struggling with like 
feeling the competition and feeling she's better than me and feeling this, you know, comparisonitis before social media. So I can't even imagine. And, and, you know, now the amplification from social media. And so I can't even imagine like kids growing up where they, I mean, some kids like are on social media from the day they're born. Right. And so, um, Talk to me a little bit more about how you, you know, started with this idea of community over competition and also just any advice for small business owners or our audience in general, advice for them to stop comparing and start being really fulfilled and focusing on community in their lives. So this is the, the question I have spent the last six years Um, trying to answer both personally and in supporting other folks in answering this question. And I think before we even dive into like, what is community over competition? How do we navigate um, comparison, comparisonitis? I love that. That's so a fun way to think about it, but it does. It's like a, it feels like it overtakes us like a disease. Like it's comparisonitis. Um, We have to understand that as human beings, we are wired to compete. We are actually wired um, to be competitive beings, to strive, to achieve, to want more, to want to build. We talk about financial freedom. That's a pursuit. That's a journey, right? We we are wired to want to um, strive for more, and, and competition is very much in line with, with that and with survival, even in its most basic form as a human. However, we are also built for belonging. We are also created for community. That same neurological wiring that um, is within our brain, that there are parts of it that drive us to compete with one another. We also see neurological wiring that suggests that we are social creatures, that belonging is critical to our well-being, just as oxygen is critical to our body, community is critical to to our our mental um, and in ways our physical well-being, our ability to be supported um, throughout our lives. And So when I was starting as a wedding photographer and I went full-time after graduating from college, I built this business and I was hitting all of my success metrics, all of my goals. I I set out to hit them and I did. I was striving. I was competing. I was trying to be the best version of me. And yet um, I found myself feeling incredibly alone. I found myself longing for connection in the chaos of starting a small business. I felt isolated. I felt alienated. And I understood that the only folks who really knew what I was walking through, who could empathize with the experience that I was going through with this responsibility on my shoulders and trying to you know, build a business from the ground up, were, were my competitors. Technically, were other, I was a photographer. They were other photographers um, or other creative mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, other small business owners. And so very early on in my career trajectory, I realized that if I continued to operate the way business had always been done and view my competitors, and I'm putting these in quotes, as threat instead of friend, as something to be afraid of rather than to be focused on collaboration, camaraderie, and how we can improve the industry together and how by uniting, we actually could make a big impact. We could do a lot of good. Um, I I realized that I, I couldn't continue to be an entrepreneur if I continued to follow the path that had been set before me, if I continued to operate the way that things had always been done to compete and um, not reach out, not reach you know across the aisle and, and become friends with somebody else. And so for me, community over competition wasn't a catchy hashtag. It wasn't a fun phrase. It wasn't a design on a t-shirt. It was an acknowledgement that we are built to belong and we are built for community. And that needs to apply to our careers and to our professional lives. And when you work 
in a non-office setting where you don't have coworkers, where you don't have that sense of camaraderie that you as a company are fighting for something, then you work as a solopreneur. And in many cases, that means you're alone against the world. You're the mm. only one fighting for the dream that you have. And I just realized that that wasn't sustainable, not just for me, but it wasn't sustainable for anybody. And so community over competition is about the idea that, yes, we might compete in the arena. We might compete as photographers, as consultants, as designers, as, you know, whatever it is that we do, but, but acknowledging that we are community first and foremost, acknowledging that we can compete and still choose to put people first. We can build a world where we want to see one another win where we're not trying to see the demise of somebody else. We know and acknowledge that's not going to make us better, not going to make us feel better or be better in any capacity, but the quite, quite the opposite, where we applaud people for succeeding. We champion people for success. We want to see everybody get a shot to make it. Um, and I, I really do believe fiercely that when we look at comparison, one of the best ways to combat comparison is to analyze and reframe cognitively in our mind um, the source of those thoughts and where where that insecurity that's maybe lighting a fire, lighting like lighting the flames of of comparison underneath us, like where that's stemming from, where that's rooted. Because oftentimes when when I have felt comparison, and I'll mention it, you know, in business, yes, but even in the most sacred and difficult of spaces when I've navigated infertility for all of my adult life, I have felt so much um, struggle with comparison around friends that have easily gotten pregnant, friends that have easily carried pregnancies, have had multiple children while I was just waiting for the chance to start fertility treatment for years and struggled with watching them celebrate holidays and knowing my husband and I were celebrating alone. And that type of pain is going to exist for me um, regardless. I can't change the fact that I struggle with infertility, but I recognized early on that I can I can control the way that I react to that reality. I can control my ability to cheer for other women. I can control the ability to not allow infertility to rob me of my love for other people, my joy for other people. I can grieve my own experience and still celebrate when they win and have success because a friend of mine getting pregnant doesn't mean that I'm not going to get pregnant. A friend of mine having success in business doesn't mean I'm not going to have success in business. Somebody else out there in the marketplace launching a new product doesn't mean I can't launch a new product or create a course or create something new in the world and do something great. If anything, it should be a marker of hope that it is possible for me. If anything, it should be an indication that there's market demand for you. Um, all of that to say that so often we view the wins of other people as our own, um, as evidence, I guess, that we're falling short or falling behind. And that's comparison speaking. That's comparison saying, she's got that thing you want and you don't have it. He had that accomplishment that you should have had. And those are lies. We have to cast those out. We have to acknowledge that it's quite the opposite. She having that success is evidence that I can have it too. He having that accomplishment is proof that we can do more and we can do it together. And I think it's easier said than done. And I, when I talk about it, I always want to kind of emphasize that like it has taken me years to get to a place where I can step into a space that in the past has caused me deep pain or that I've experienced personal trauma and and not compare myself and it still takes practice. It takes practice with every setback. It takes practice with every moment where I'm not making the progress that other folks are making or where I'm being told no and a door is being shut and that pain is real. 
But it also comes with a powerful understanding that when we can't change our circumstance, we can change the way we react to it. And part of part of that includes guaranteeing that we refuse to do it alone and guaranteeing that we want to see other people win in the pursuit that we're also going after, um, knowing that there's enough room for all of us, knowing that it's it's not a zero-sum game. Like if she is crushing it, it means you can crush it too. It doesn't mean that there's less success out there. Um, it's not like one cake where if someone takes a slice, there's one less slice for you. You're in a bakery, darling. Like we can bake as many cakes as you want and they can look like whatever you want them to look like because the truth is there's enough ingredients to go around to make all of the desserts in the world. We just have to choose to stop focusing on that one cake and that one slice that's missing and realize that we have the capacity to bake more cakes, um, to build bigger tables, to continue to do that in the spaces that we, we are a part of and that we occupy. And I know that's a longer answer than you probably wanted around comparison, but um, it's it's something that hits close to home for me. And so whenever I talk about it, I want to make sure that I, I give it the attention it deserves because it's something we all struggle with. It is very real. It is very present. Oh, my gosh. That is so such a holistic response to this idea. And I think so often when people talk about comparison, it's like, just focus over here. Just don't do it, right? And so, hearing that deeper rooted, um, you know, uh, the the meaning behind it of like why it matters, not just for you, you know, in your day to day life, but as a surface level to belong and to feel like you belong in your community. That's just amazing. And I I love the example of being in the arena with people of like your competitor and everything because I think about that too from a perspective of like haters. You know, if I get a mean DM or a, a troll is on in my comments or something like that. And it's so easy. You know, I'm, I'm such an empath that I'm like, oh my gosh, my feelings are hurt. This person, right? That's my initial thing. This, my, this person doesn't like me. I suck on this, on that. And I have to remember that like, this isn't a comment from somebody in the arena with me. This is a comment from somebody in the stands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to yell. People in the stands are going to yell no matter what. They're going to yell no matter what. They're going to say good things, bad things, whatever. But the, the advice that I'm going to take is from somebody else who's in the arena. And so I love that example of being in the arena, but with your companion competitors and making them that sense of community. That's so cool. I've never heard that before. So I love that. Um, as we're talking, and I love how you also transition that into your, you know, your personal life too. And I love how open you are um, about both, about the business side, the entrepreneur side, and about your personal life. And, and we're going to dive into that in a little bit. Um, from a financial perspective, can you tell us about how your, um, you know, what your journey was getting started in entrepreneurship from a financial perspective, um, and just how that journey in entrepreneurship looks with money of, of dealing with this or growing, you know, you've started different businesses and, and how you keep those things separate or together or one funds the other, whatever, like what that dynamic looks like. Yeah. So to go back to the beginning for me, entrepreneurship and actually becoming a photographer, it wasn't um, it wasn't initially a pursuit of passion. And whenever I talk about this, I feel a little bit like, you know, unpopular opinion alert, like moment. I feel like I need to like disclaim like unpopular opinion. Sometimes you can pursue an entrepreneurial path because frankly, you need to make money. Um, that totally. was my case. So I was raised by a single mom and um, my mom uh, actually 
gifted me a camera as a part of trying to help me express myself and navigate some um, depression and anxiety that I experienced as a teenager. And so for her, she thought, hey, art is a great vehicle um, to kind of navigate learning learning more about how you feel and expressing yourself and, and all of that. And that camera opened up a door for me for the first time where I realized, oh, people want to pay me as I continue to progress to take their photographs. And I realized like, oh, this, this is a business opportunity. And so I actually started photographing senior portraits and then weddings my senior year of high school going into college. And oh, wow. my photography business became the way that I actually paid my own way through college. I took out um, a good amount of loans and then the rest I paid in cash by, well, you know, cash, but cash technically, by um, photographing weddings on the weekend. And so I would go to class at Penn Monday through Friday. I would take the train Friday evening back from Philadelphia uh, down here to Annapolis, Baltimore, photograph Saturday, maybe photograph Sunday, take the train back up early on Monday to make my 9 a.m. And I did that throughout college. And this business became a vehicle where I was able to not only um, see a light at the end of my college debt tunnel, but truthfully pay for um, my own ability to you know, function while in college. And so I really took my job seriously because for me, it was a way to not um, place that burden and I, you know, on my mom who was sacrificing so much for my sister and I as a single parent. Now, when I graduated, I graduated at a point where financially the business was doing great. Financially, the business was, I believe, like just under, if not at six figures in revenue as a solo photographer. I had worked really hard while in college to kind of tee myself up for that exit. Yeah. And so as I continued, and that's why I say I hit all my my metrics of success. I mean, one of my metrics was I want to try to bring in a quarter of a million dollars in revenue. Now it's revenue, not profit, mind you, but revenue as a wedding photographer. And I nearly hit that goal by the time I was done um, in my business full time. I never crossed it, but I got real close. And um, so that business for me the photography business specifically um, became the vehicle by which I could try other entrepreneurial endeavors. And for actually several months, it was before I before basically I joined HoneyBook and became an actual employee of HoneyBook. That business, along with my co-founders' businesses, that is what funded Rising Tide to be free. I mean, we would work most of the day on Rising Tide, um, but those businesses are what were paying our bills. Like continuing to shoot weddings on the weekend is what enabled us to spend that time during the week working on Rising Tide until um, we basically were acquired by HoneyBook and had a sustainable future um, without needing to monetize the community, which we could go into for a whole nother path of like, how do you monetize something that you don't want to monetize? I mean, it's like, it was a, it was a real struggle. Like, I don't want to charge for meetups. We want accessible education. We want Rising Tide to be free. So how the heck are we going to keep this thing afloat for longer than six months? And thankfully, HoneyBook came to, came into the picture and just really saw the vision and um, brought, brought me on full-time and my co-founders full-time to work at HoneyBook, but really to run Rising Tide and to have that that support to do it well. And so anyway, without rambling further, I would say, you know, my career kind of stepped in. I stepped into this world out of truly like discovering it and then necessity to pay bills, but then also seeing the possibility that existed in running a business and, and having that freedom, that ability to earn money, um, not based on what someone else says your worth is, but on your ability to create solutions to people's problems or to offer extraordinary experiences to folks that are getting married in my case. And like 
that to me unlocked a whole new world of understanding finances. And, you know, fast forwarding to today where I'm at, I mean, I'm a full-time employee, so a little bit of a unique situation and I have a salary, which is, is wonderful in this season of life. Um, but I also have my business. And so revenue in that business looks like affiliate income, um, Primarily right now, I mean, we run like a small shirt shop, but I always joke that my goal there is not to lose money. It, we don't, we really like in full honesty, we make like nothing on the shirts, but that's because they're collaborative. And so we, like our collaborator gets paid, my team gets paid. It's like a whole thing. Um, but yeah, goal is just not to lose money on the shirts because it's more of a passion <laughs> project um, in the business. And then writing, you know, as an author and writing a book. And so that on the personal side has been um again, something new for me. Like those are new streams of revenue that never existed when I was photographing weddings. But again, as an indicator for anyone listening out there that the when you look at your revenue streams today, that can evolve and change. And I think one of the strengths that I really am grateful that I've had in this journey and I encourage everyone to kind of work on as a muscle is the the strength of flex, flexibility and ultimately being able to adapt. And COVID presented a real challenge to our community specifically as many of them are event professionals, many of them are ser- service-based business. Like if they don't show up, they don't get paid. And you have a pandemic hit where many states still are restricting a lot of um, these businesses. And so that ability to pivot, that willingness to be flexible, um, Honestly, I think that's the biggest financial lesson I've learned in 10 years as a small business owner is you have to constantly be willing to adapt and to change and be open to learning, trying new things when it comes to money and experimenting, um, always experimenting. And truly like affiliate revenue for me was one of those where I always was like, I'm never going to do that. I I don't see the, the I don't think that's really going to help. And today, um, some of those affiliate programs and the content that we've created have taken on a life of their own and really are enabling me to keep my team on board in a season where I'm working full time. Um, and so it's interesting how experimental revenue streams can also go on to become really strong pillars of what keeps your business functioning in global pandemics and strange seasons alike. That's so true. And I love that, you know, just talking about the diversification and how it changes and how I think a lot of people, you know, I'll get, I'll get a DM from a college student who says, uh, Chloe, I need seven streams of income. What should they be? And I'm like, start with one. <laughs> start with one. Yes. Okay, cool. Land the job, yes. do, you know, start the business, whatever. And then once that's stable, that's the big thing. A lot of people are like jumping onto the next one before like their first stream isn't a stable one. And so stabilize your first one, then move on to the next one, stabilize it, then move on. Um, You know, a lot of people want to like jump in right away and start a bunch. So I love hearing your story of one stream, almost funding this next one to start and stabilizing and then moving on to the next one. It's so cool. Um, so I love, 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 love your story. And you, you've talked a little bit about, um, you know, your personal journey up until this point and and you're very open about it. You've had a benign brain tumor. Um, you underwent, you under, what is that? Undergo, you've undergone, what's the like present tense of that? You've undergone neurosurgery to have it removed. You've battled with infertility and you've had a miracle baby that, I mean, those seem like five different people, all the five different stories of five different people. And it would still be a wild story. So the fact that that's, 
your story and and I'm sure just a snippet of, you know, we see the cer- we see the tip of the iceberg of what actually goes on. Can you tell us a little bit more about going through some of those hardships and how that strengthened your relationship in your life um, or with your husband or with your friends or whoever? Um, and also how it has changed or shifted your overall mindset or perspective. Mm. I think the latter part of that question is the easier one because I can honestly tell you that I am a different person today than I was three and a half, four years ago. It hasn't even been four years since my brain surgery. Three and a half years ago um, when I went in for brain surgery, your mindset will continue to shift throughout your entire life. All of ours will. I think about um, our, our perspectives on the world as like a pair of glasses we put on every morning. And each day when we walk out into the world, we experience new things. And the hope that I have is that all of us are open with whatever we walk through or whatever we experience, those that we love walking through, for those glasses and those lenses to change just a little bit, right? Sometimes we'll go through something um, traumatic in our life. And in my case, you know, I think about my diagnosis. I think about brain surgery. I think about um, infertility. I think about these things as like they weren't just like my lens shifted a little Sometimes these moments were moments where I got entirely new lenses put into the glasses or where I maybe walked in and they were rose colored and then they just got a little bit clearer. Um, And so for me, you know, I, I mean it when I say I'm not the same person I was three and a half years ago because walking through um, a surgery where you're truly not sure what you're going to feel like or be like on the other side of it, where you understand the risks that are being read to you, where you're in your mid twenties and you know, you're looking at your husband and you think, my God, like in sickness and in health, I never thought we'd be facing this, um, right now. Like I thought this was a vow we'd be dealing with in our sixties and here we are. Um, and so it transforms, I think everything about how you view the future, the biggest of which it transforms the way that you view what is important. The things I thought were important, the things that I put so much worry into, the things that I felt like were so critical of how I looked at myself, how I thought about my own identity, how I valued my worth in the world, eliminated in the matter of seconds, realizing I was going in for brain surgery and I didn't know what life would be like on the other side of that surgery. And for me, I think, and, I, and I'm sure there are folks listening to this that have walked through something, whether it's they themselves have endured something that shifted their perspective dramatically or, um, you know, I think about when we lose someone we love, it does a very similar thing. Or when we're at risk of losing someone we love, it does a very similar thing where it reframes what is important. And so that being sort of the most important thing that I think I took out of that experience is it, it changed what mattered to me. And then we talk about relationships and that's where, um, you know, that is, that's the number one thing it changed for me. I, I think it really emphasized that, well, I'll say two things. One, um, it really emphasized for me that love and relationships in tandem are the most important thing in my life, my family, my friends, um, the people that I care about and two time that time is the one resource we can never get back. Time is the one thing that every day when we wake up, we have less of. And it doesn't matter how much money we make. It doesn't matter how healthy we are today. It doesn't matter, um, you know, how great our nails look or how great our hair is or, um, you know, whether we've hit all our goals. Like that 
clock is always ticking and it's a great equalizer. And I don't say that to be, you know, morose or or down or anything like that. I say it to be the opposite. Knowing that time is a resource that I will never get more of, knowing that time is the thing that um, I'm always going to see ticking away, again, reframed my importance of how I spend it. No longer do I give away my time to things that do not matter. No longer do I feel bad about saying no or setting boundaries because I recognize if I give an hour of my time here, it's one less hour I give to my husband, my son, my mom, and that hour will never come back to me ever. And so there are going to be things that I have to spend my time on that, you know, make sure the bills get paid and make sure that, you know, we function as a family. However, there were so many instances prior to surgery specifically where I just felt so guilty saying no. I felt so bad about saying, I can't do that. Or, you know, is that a paid opportunity or, um, you know, and now it's just so clear. It's it's not that I'm saying no to that person or that amazing opportunity that that's being presented is that I have to look at my son and say, I'm saying no to him. I'm saying no to dinner with my husband if I work late. I'm saying no to a walk in the morning with my mom. Um, One thing too I'll share with you, and a a mom said this to me where she said, you know, you get 18 summers with your kids. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I don't know why I'm crying. You get 18 summers. And I think about like for those of us who live away from our parents, right? Think Mm -hmm. about, you know, we might think like, okay, our parents are in their 60s, so we might get 20 more years. But if we live away from our parents and we see them once a year, that means you get 20 more times of seeing your parents. Not 20 more years. You get 20 more moments. You see where I'm going with this? The minute we start to value time as if it is the most precious thing we have in life, it is the minute that everything begins to change. And it also is the minute that we become aggressive about protecting that special time that we have with the people that we love. And so you ask, like, how does it change your relationships? Well, I can honestly tell you that I value them more than I've ever valued them. I can honestly tell you that I am fierce about the time I spend and unapologetic with needing to set boundaries because. I'm not going to miss a moment that my son has. I'm not going to miss an opportunity to hug my mom, um, especially now that she's vaccinated. I'm not going (laughs) to miss a moment um, of getting to spend time with the people that I love because no amount of money, no award, no anything is more important to me than those relationships. And I acknowledge that might not be the case for everyone. Um, and I acknowledge that some some of you listening are nodding because you've experienced something where you're like, I get it. I really, really get it. But I I know today that um, that's how I view the world. You know, I view it through that mm-hmm. lens of like, I can always make more money. I can always like find a route, cut costs here, make a sacrifice. Like we don't have cable. We're, you know, like things like that, you know, We're like yeah. we do this, we do that. We make, we make certain decisions. Because I don't want to have to say no to the things that really matter. I want to say yes to the things that matter and prioritize my life according to the understanding that I have limited time on this earth. And I I don't want to waste it. Oh my gosh. That just, whew, you had me like tears welling in my eyes too. It just, it, it truly does, you know, and that's why I named this company Deeper Than Money is because 
there are days where I'm like, I, I just want to flip a table by how many DMs I get about like, how do I, you know, budget and how do I do this, which I'm just kidding. I'll always answer DMs and I'll always like respond and come up with those things. However, it's like, I just want to shake people sometimes. And so they get that. And so they get that it isn't about how they can save more money or how they can do this. It's about using money as a tool to achieve these things, to achieve the time freedom or the the ability to say, no, I'm not going to take that overtime. I'm going to go home for the holidays or whatever that may look like. So that is amazing. So if somebody's listening and they're like, holy cow, time, I finally get it. Time is so valuable. I need to be looking at time instead of just money and, and valuing that. But they're like, I don't know how to actually set those boundaries of saying no to work or saying no to my friends or saying no to this. What are some tangible things in your journey that you've realized that, hey, now that I get this is important, here are some like things that I added to my practice or took away from my like day-to-day practice that has helped you set those boundaries? So one of the first things that I always recommend everybody do is start by grabbing a piece of paper and making a list, making a list, especially when we talk about finances, making a list of all of the either revenue streams or activities that you do that pour into your overall, um, you know, net revenue, like in the course of running businesses or a business, here are all the activities. And it depends if you have multiple businesses, that's where I say revenue streams. If you have let's just say a a single service or a single business that you're pursuing, then we look at like activities, you know, how you're spending that time in the course of a business. And And if you're really tech savvy, do it in a Google sheet because it makes sorting really easy. But then what you do is once you've listed out all those tasks, it's time to kind of analyze, okay, which of those tasks can only you do? Which of those things on that sheet do you have the possibility or the opportunity to either automate and streamline, outsource to somebody else. Um, Or I also always say add a category, like a separate category for like, what are the things that you love? Like on that list that maybe they don't generate revenue, but gosh, they just pour into your heart. So you're like, oh, I couldn't lose that one because I love it. I love doing it. Um, But then also let's talk about the other ones. What are the ones that you put off, you procrastinate, you avoid because you, it, it drains you. It's like the thing, like for me, accounting and taxes, always the thing that I know I have to do but gosh, I will get everything else done on the to-do list before that item gets done. Okay. So we can use, let's use it as an example. So when I'm looking at time and how I spend my time, accounting was a space for many years where it took me a long time. I wasn't savvy in it. It exhausted me. It drained me doing the bookkeeping, bank reconciliation, all of those um, different tasks in the business. And so I identified that as something that Um, needed to get done, was critical to the success of the business. However, was something that I didn't have to personally do. I could could outsource. Um, And actually by outsourcing, I did a little bit of an analysis and I said, okay, how much is it going to cost to outsource this to a bookkeeper versus how much is that amount of my time actually worth? Like the amount of time I'm putting into it. Now for photographers, the best example of this is editing and post-processing where I'd photograph a wedding and I'd spend 10 hours, 11 hours, culling, editing, producing that event, where if I outsourced, I mean, it wasn't even uh, from a financial perspective, it wasn't even a comparison. I mean, outsourcing, it was so much cheaper and regaining that 8, 10, 12 hours of my week back enabled me then to start building these other revenue streams, enabled me to go and actually strengthen the business in those spaces where only I could do it. And some of that included personal work to help pour back into my soul to make me a better business owner, a better photographer, a better creative. And so I always say, 
you know, one of the recommendations that I have around setting those boundaries and understanding what to say no to is by understanding what you could essentially allow someone else to say yes to or automate and streamline in the business. And, and with HoneyBook, it's a great example. It's actually interesting. I had started working for HoneyBook prior to going through brain surgery and they really supported me throughout that. But when I came back to work, you know, I, I essentially told the CEO, I said, look, this has a very new meaning to me. Like my work here, I always loved it and I loved building community because that's what I love to do. But now I realize that the two hours we give somebody back, we give a mom back every week or the six hours we give, um, you know, a, a, a dad back every week or um, a college student back every week or whatever it is. Like that's not just an anecdote. That's not just a success statement. Like that is time that they will never get back. Like we're literally giving them the one thing that is the most important in my lens now of the world. And so I'm going to fight for it. And so I even encourage, whether it's HoneyBook or any of the types of tools that exist, the platforms that exist that can help you to streamline and be more efficient with that time, that can basically for a tiny amount of revenue a month, give you hours of your life back. We start saying, how much is an hour of my time worth? Um, it is a phenomenal way to build sustainability such that you're not just working more to earn more, right? You're working smarter, not harder. You're building out a system that works for you while you're sleeping, whether that's different types of revenue streams, whether that's, you know, relationship management for your clients, whether that's automated payments, reminders, things that are off your plate, both physically when it comes to time and also psychologically, the lack of stress of like, did I respond to that? Like, no, you built a system and it's handled, right? Those types of mechanisms are so crucial. So whether it's outsourcing, um, whether it's streamlining and automating, I just, I find that to be a really effective way to understand the areas where you can be more efficient in your business so that you can actually be inefficient in the time that you spend with the people that you love, that you can just live a life where you're not worried about, oh, I, mommy's got to go, honey, mommy, mommy's got to leave because I have to go do all the bookkeeping and accounting. It's like, no, mommy added an extra revenue stream over here or made an adjustment here and cut some costs to make room for that bookkeeper so that I'm actually, hey, it's four, I'm actually done. And acknowledging that ability to do so and then kind of sitting in the CEO seat instead of the one who wears many hats, like stepping into a new role in the business, I think is also, we could do a whole episode on that, but the mindset shift yeah. required to kind of say, all right, the business isn't going to run me anymore. Like I'm going to run the business or I'm going to run my life. I'm not going to let my life run me. Like I'm going to, I'm going to step into the captain's, captain's chair, the driver's seat, and I'm going to kind of make these choices, outsource, automate, streamline, build systems. So that something that maybe took me 10 hours now takes two and it's done without me having to stress about it and it's effective and it works. Um, it is, it's such a different way to operate and it gives us that freedom that I think all, all of us deserve um, in getting a chance to, to be more efficient in the time in those areas where we can then reallocate to the things that we love and pas are passionate about. Oh my gosh, that's so great. I love that. And you teased this a little bit earlier, but I would love to hear. Can you tell us a little bit more? Maybe maybe it's secret. I don't know. Maybe you can't. But can you tell us a little bit more about your book that's coming out in August? Yes. Oh my gosh. I can. I can tell you a little bit. So my book is called Built to Belong, Discovering the Power of Community Over Competition. And it's a little bit of what we talked about with a whole lot of science, a whole lot of case studies, and really heartfelt and vulnerable stories along the way. Um, some of them I've sort of hinted at and shared, whether it's brain surgery or infertility, but 
again, it gets to the heart of saying that all of us are going to feel that wire, that wire to compete nature. All of us are going to feel lonely. All of us struggle with, with loneliness, truthfully. And yet there is a better way to live. There is a way to live where we walk through the world celebrating the accomplishments of others. And as a result, not only do we feel more fulfilled, but we are more successful. Like the success of one can be bolstered, supported, and championed by the success of others. And building dynamic communities where we're fighting for one another rather than feeling pit against one another, where we are raising the tide and really doing it collectively, side by side, it's possible. And so the book walks us through how to do it. It talks about the ability to navigate this world with this mindset of community over competition and um, the impact that that has not only on us as individuals, but also on the people that look up to us and the communities that we're a part of and the opportunity it presents um, for all of us in our own success to help other people to, to find theirs and to reach back that hand and keep the, I love the gif. I always think of the gif of like women reaching back a hand and lifting up other women. And that, like, that is what this heart and this mindset's all about. It's like, if, if one of us succeeds, we can help others to succeed. And if all of us are fighting mm -hmm. for the success of, of the collective and the group, we are unstoppable. So the book, it, it gets to the heart of that. It walks us through how to do it. Um, and I can't wait. I can't wait for folks to read it. Yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I will be, I'm going to shoot to be your first book. So I'll, I'll work really, I'll be like, set my timer. I used to love that as a kid, like when books would come out at Walmart at like midnight, I'd beg my parents like, can we go wait in line? I want the first book. I remember doing that. So I'll have that same attitude when it comes to to ordering your book this fall. That's so exciting. Um, last question. What is a big either money goal or business goal for you right now? So I want to do the same thing that – like if we're talking big, I'm just going to go big. Yeah, I want to do big. the same thing go that big. my mother did big, for big, me, big. which was she she prepared me and gave me a better life than she had. And my biggest money goal, my biggest life goal is to do that same thing for my children and for my son. I want to give him more than I had. And I also – not just financially, I want him to – feel, and, and I, I write about this a little bit in the book, but feel a responsibility and indebtedness to use whatever wealth he then creates to do the same for other people. And that idea that um, like truly my biggest financial goal at the end of the day is that I can use money to impact people's lives in a positive way, in my community, in the small business space, with my my intellect and like whatever I create. That's why like some of the projects I work on, you'll notice like I make I make a lot of decisions that aren't even the best financial ones for my business, but I promise you they're helping to transform the way other folks are making money. Like we will sacrifice sometimes our bottom line to ensure that my team is taken care of. That that's what wealth is mm -hmm. meant for in my eyes. Like wealth is not meant to be hoarded. I can't take it with me. When I'm when I am gone, trust me, I've had these conversations with the Lord like I'm not I can't take it with me. And same goes for when I talk about time, it's the same thing with with wealth, but I can leave a legacy for other people. I can make an impact while I'm here. I can fight for causes I care about and ensure that other business owners when they go through a tough time are never left alone. Um and so my biggest goal I guess would be that I can leave my son better off even than I am and use whatever I have, tools, skills, financial gains on this planet to help and equip and I have a real soft spot for other women and a real soft spot for single moms being that that's a part of, of my story with my mom, um, ensuring that, that, you know, we're looking out for each other and having that type of financial freedom where I can do that and have been able to do that in, in this season of life. Um, 
it keeps me fired up. It keeps me going. Like it just, I don't know, lights, lights a little spark under my butt to like keep hustling so that I can make my money work for the world because that's the legacy I want to leave. Yeah. Wow. That is so amazing. I love it. I love hearing big goals because I really, I'm a big believer that when women dream really big and, and talk about it openly, it inspires other women to say, you know what, what if I dream that big? Like, what if I went that hard and just like believed in it? So I love that so much. Oh my gosh, this has been amazing. Lastly, can you please tell people where they can find you? And we'll link below in the show notes where you can go and check out Natalie, check out Rising Tide, check out HoneyBook, check out all of the things. But can you just share with other people where where they can come hang out with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm glad we'll link we'll link all the spaces. What I always say um, is, if you're looking for a community, Rising Tide is an amazing place to start for our small business owners. So you can learn more about our meetups. They're completely free. We have over 400 groups. Um, you know, they're just extraordinary space to connect. And that's honeybook.com/slash/risingtide or Rising Tide Society on Instagram. A great place to get plugged in. Um, on a personal note, if you want to connect with me further as well, nataliefrank.com. Um, or just at Natalie Frank on Instagram. It's really where I spend most of my time uh, when it comes to connecting. I love, I'm a big like DMer and I love jumping in the DMs and chatting. And then, um, yeah, on the HoneyBook side, if you do run a business and you're ready to get things in order, HoneyBook.com is a great place to start. And I'm available in all those places, all those, all those spaces and here to support in any way that I can. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much, Natalie. This was so amazing. Everyone, please make sure tag Natalie. Thank her for coming on the Deeper the Money podcast and everyone else. We will see you back next week. Bye.